take your Bibles and head back to Hebrews 6. Now, this is the last time we'll be in Hebrews for a long time. I do not know how long I'm going to preach in Genesis next year, but I'm planning on digging into all of the big episodes in the first half of that book. So I don't know how long we'll be there. We're going to start back in in January to our apologetic series called Genesis Fact or Fiction. And we're going to pick up with the flood with Noah's life and then moving into the flood narrative and all of that. So we will come back to Hebrews. We will finish the entire book. I think it's an important enough book for us to come back to. But I don't want to get out of balance and spend so much time in the either the Old Testament or the New Testament that we lose sight of those. God's put several messages on my heart for the next month. In fact, next week I'm going to preach something that um, I've only even studied one other time. And I love the story, but God's taught me a lot in preparing this message for y'all. It's from the, he, the uh, 10 lepers. You remember 10 were healed, but only one returned. So I'm going to bring you a message next week called Genuine Gratitude. And I want to say something about being grateful. We did a big program. We do a big Veterans Day program here every year. Many of you know that. A lot of folks came out. We honored those men and women who served. But I want to take just a, a point of personal privilege to say thank you to Holly's, I'll just say um, Holly's buddy. Uh, Holly's buddy's named Garrett. Garrett is from Florida. He's up here um, staying for a bit. And um, who knows what may happen with Garrett one day. But Garrett just came back from a one-year deployment with the Army in serving in Kuwait and Syria and a few other nations. So Garrett, we do appreciate your service and welcome home, sir. Thank you. What are you smiling for? Quit smiling, Holly. Parker, can you keep an eye on them? Thank you. I don't know about this. All right, so uh, we do appreciate all of our men and women and your service. And if you've never been to our Veterans Day program, I really do hope that'll be something you'll consider putting on your calendar next year. It's an incredible, incredible celebration with our uh, church and school family. But thank you for what you do. So what have we been learning? Well, we're learning verse 19, and I want us to look at it again, and today we'll get the context of that verse. Let's say it together without any blanks, and then we'll throw a bunch of blanks in it. You ready? It says this, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Good, we're gonna unpack that. We're gonna talk about what that means today, set it within its context, but let's throw some blanks in there and see how we do. You ready? This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. There you go. Very good. We were learning in the first half of chapter six, the true followers of Christ must grow beyond the ABCs of faith. And we've got to graduate from spiritual elementary school. We looked at one of the most challenging texts in all of the Bible, and it talks about, can we be saved and lost? Is that just an illustration? Is it hypothetical? Is it talking about rewards? And my conclusion is that there were some in these days that were professing Christ, but did not actually possess the Holy Spirit and were not genuinely saved. And the writer of the book is saying, now look, if you go back and leave the faith, if you walk away from Jesus, it's gonna show that nothing was genuine to begin with. It'll be burnt up, if you will. It'll, it'll demonstrate briars and thorns, but you can keep going. In fact, today, we're gonna to have this message on endurance and encouragement. 
These folks were being persecuted. They were losing homes. They were losing jobs. Some were beginning to lose their lives. It would get more and more intense in the days of this writing. Remember, we're in about 66, 67 AD. It's Neronian persecution. Eventually, as the Jews attempt to rise up, the Romans will squash them one more time and destroy their temple. When we were there in Israel the last few weeks, there's no stone of the temple left, not one. All you see at the Western Wall is the retaining stones, the retaining wall, but nothing is left on the top. In fact, today, the entire top of the Temple Mount is under Muslim control. And so what you see up there are controlled by the the Palestinians, by the Muslims there. And so it is that Western Wall that remains, but not one stone of the temple because the people rebelled and Rome squashed them like a bug. But in the midst of the persecution, God is saying through the writer, don't quit. Look to your forefathers. Trust who Jesus is and what he's done. Let me, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen the fear and frustration on the face of a child trying to ride a bicycle for the first time after you took off the training wheels? You ever seen that? And they're like, don't let me go. Stay with me. Don't let me get, for all of our girls, and of course for Bobby, who's not so little anymore, but I was there, we were together, taking those training wheels off and running beside of them. And there's all that uncertainty, but then have you seen that same child when they begin to pedal and you let go and they begin to ride on their own? And there's this sense of joy and there's this exuberance. We told Bobby, he was uh, four. I said, look, if you can learn to ride two wheels well, by the time uh, your fifth birthday comes, I'm gonna get you something with a motor on it. And so for his fifth birthday and thereafter, we ha- he rode like little dirt bikes and stuff around because he loved to ride. And I love, remember very clearly running. I see the house where we lived and the neighborhood. And there was actually, interestingly enough, a Mormon church across the street we did a lot in their parking lot. So it was good for something. But anyway, no, I'm kidding. So we, we went in that parking lot. They were actually very sweet people there. And that we went in that parking lot and we taught our kids. And I remember when they got it. I also remember the times that they fell over. And there were some boo-boos. And you know, when they got the boo-boos, they really didn't want dad. For whatever reason, they wanted mom. I guess she's more gentle. I'm like, get up, dust yourself off. What's wrong with you, cry baby? So Cindy was a little sweeter about it. But they want the mom or they want the dad. They want somebody to help them pick up the bike, dust them off. Of course, by the time our last two came along, they're head to toe with helmets and pads and all this weird stuff. Who really needs that stuff, right? But anyway, they had all of that. And I want to remind you, that there are gonna be times in life where it feels wobbly, where it feels like the wheels have come off and you don't know what's gonna happen. And if you live long enough, let's be real, there are times you're gonna fall. There are gonna be times you're gonna get a boo-boo. You're gonna have a strawberry. I wanna just say, look, as a Christian, there is a heavenly father with you that will lift you back up, that will dust you off, that will help you get going again, but you can't ride by fear. You've got to live by faith. And in that light, I want you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. And let's pick up with verse nine. And remember, he's saying, look, if you don't really know Jesus, then you're not gonna have any good fruit in your life. It's just gonna be briars and thorns. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. 
For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints, and you do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. You see that endurance? Don't you dare give up. Keep believing, keep serving, keep going, that you do not become sluggish, or really the Greek word there could just be translated lazy. Don't become lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, writer, who are you talking about? Okay, for when God made a promise to Abraham, there's an example, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. That's a quote from Genesis 22. And so after he had patiently endured, Abraham obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. We'll unpack all of that. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, that is the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, that would be the promise of God and the oath that he presented to Abraham, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence beyond, behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us. Now he makes it clear that we know who he's talking about. Hope personified. The forerunner is even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is an incredibly profound text. It's a beautiful passage that said to the people a couple of millennia ago, keep going. You don't have to give up. Look to men like Abraham. See how faithful God was to make a promise, confirm it with an oath, and he could swear by none greater than himself. See how Jesus has gone before us. The proto, the first entrance into God's presence. See how he has laid an anchor in the heavens for our soul and that we can be sure and steady even when the storms come. Thank you for this truth. Help us to be a people that demonstrate endurance and help us to encourage one another in the journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. So let's unpack some truths here that we're going to see out of this text. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is stay faithful and fruitful as imitators, not imitations. We've actually talked about this concept of being an imitator versus an imitation before. When we look at verses 9 through 12, we see how the writer moves from a strong warning to solid confidence based on the recollection of past events and present faithful action. And so he says, this work and this love that you have done, you have done toward God. That's what the language says here. You've done this toward God. That means you've done it in his name for his glory. You've done this in a way that has been obvious to others. And you're confident. Beloved, we are confident in these things concerning you. That is the, I don't want to bore you with this, but that's the Greek perfect tense. And all that means is the writer says, this is settled. This is not a snap judgment. This is settled. You have been faithful. Now keep being faithful. You have demonstrated things which accompany salvation. 
So show this same diligence. Make your hope sure and secure. Some of you lack assurance. Some of you are afraid. Some of you have this pressure and you think, oh, it's coming down so hard on me and so hard on my family. And it's hard to be a Christ follower in this generation. And this was the thinking here. Again, under this deep-seated Neronian persecution, it is challenging. But the writer says, you've been faithful before. Now prove your faithfulness in the future. Don't give up. It was hard on Abraham at times. It was tough when God told Abraham to follow his instructions to the T, and yet he continued to be obedient. Yes, he fell. Yes, he made mistakes. But overall, he was God's man. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit God's promises. Be an imitator of those who have gone before. And he talks about fruitfulness here. He talks about to show diligence here and become fruitful here. Like the fruit of the Spirit, show love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And some of you would say, but pastor, I don't have the fruit of patience. I don't have the fruit of of long-suffering. I don't have the fruit of joy. Wait a minute, you're dividing what God never divided. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is singular. Fruit. You said, but you just said love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You just said nine different things. Uh Uh-huh. An apple has a core and it has seeds and it has meat and it has skin and it has a stem and it has other parts. But without those things, you'd say it's not a whole apple. And Christians, we are to demonstrate fruit. It's a singular thing, fruit, that is comprised of these different parts and these different pieces. And what he's saying is, look, you've shown some of this before. Continue in diligence with full assurance in hope. Don't stop. You know, if you stop, inevitably, the briars will come in inevitably the fruit will be choked out. If you become lazy, do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. What happens if you become sluggish? Look at Proverbs 24 with me. The writer says, I went by the field of the lazy man and the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns, Surface covered with nettles, stone wall broken down, and I saw it and I thought a lot about it. I considered it well, and I looked and I received instruction. What did God tell you, sir? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest, and your poverty will come like a prowler, your need like an armed man. Let me ask you a question. If you've ever had a garden, even if you just have a lawn, If you don't proactively keep it up, what do you have to do for the weeds to take over? Absolutely nothing. Remember what we said about a month ago? What do you have to do to be lost? Nothing. We're born running from God. We're born with an inclination to have the briars and thorns and thistles, the nettles to come up and choke out the good. Like the back of our yard when we moved into our home, the whole back lower section of our yard, it's sort of three-tiered as it moves toward the water. And going back at that back section, it was a total disaster. Weeds and briars way, way, way up over my head. And it took a lot of work to clean that place up because what you realize very quickly is if I don't take care of this, it's naturally 
going to get worse. That's why Darwinian evolution is such a farce, that and many other reasons, but we'll get back into that in January. The point is this, do not be lazy in your faith, be an imitator of those who have endured, not an imitation. What's the difference? Well, I've written this. God is calling us to be authentic representations, not inferior replicas. You're not trying to fool anybody. You're not trying to make them believe somehow you're the Christ. You want them to see the Christ in you. As Paul would say on five different occasions, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want my children to be able to look to me. I want them to be able to say, I want to read my Bible like dad. I want to pray like dad. I want to live. Now, I'm, I've got a tremendous number of flaws. None of them need to say amen. I've got many things that they don't want to imitate. But in spiritual things, I want them to say, I want a marriage like my mother and father. I want the man in my life to love me like dad loves mom. I want him to lead like he leads. I want that because when I think of an imitator, a lot of times I think of like an impersonator. What makes a great impersonator? Have you ever seen a really good one? It's amazing to watch. I mean, they look that way, they sound like the person, their moves are similar. If you see a great Elvis impersonator, have you ever seen a bad one? I mean, have you ever done the cruise ship thing where you're looking like, oh, that dude needs to get off the stage? It's very uncomfortable. Not that unlike Christians, is it? If you see one that's really trying to live life like Jesus and do the right thing, not holier than thou, not with their nose stuck in the air, but really humbly trying to live like Jesus, it is a very wonderful, beautiful thing to observe. But if you see somebody that's trying to fake it, you know very quickly, this is uncomfortable. That's where we get that hypocrite concept, that idea of a mask wearer. You know, sometimes when you think of an imitation, you think of things like imitation wood grain, imitation leather, imitation orange juice. I'm not asking you to be a cheap imitation. I'm asking you to be a genuine imitator. You are looking to Christ. You are looking to men of faith like Abraham, women of faith like Ruth. You are looking to the ultimate example, Jesus Christ himself. And you're saying, how can I live my life like this person. You might remember I told you we were in a department store several years ago and I saw a two carat diamond ring. Two carats. I could have bought Miss Cindy a two carat ring for $29. What a steal. What a deal. But I think we both know that there's no way that's going to happen. There's no way that's real. For years and years, especially in smaller church, being a pastor that went, did all the hospital things and all that, for many years I bought Miss Cindy a lot of jewelry that came out of um, hospital gift shops. I'm going to just tell you straight. And a lot of that jewelry would turn her skin certain colors, right? Because... I knew what I was getting. It was just I was there, and I hate shopping, and I break out in a rash when I go to the mall. I just can't stand it. The only store I can actually spend time in is Bass Pro Shop. That's God's gift to us. And I realized that if you spend cheap, you can get a cheap replica. But when we think about Christianity, God gave it all. God gave the very life of his son because he's not a cheap father. He gave the best heaven had to offer to give us the real thing. And I want you to be an ambassador for Christ. The Bible uses that term to be a true representative, not a knockoff, not a hypocrite. Stay faithful and fruitful as imitators, not imitations, not imitations. The second truth I want you to see is this. We're going to look to our faithful forefathers, and as they did, we're going to trust God's promises. Trust God's promises. So 
Ultimately, we're gonna look back to Jesus every time. But here, the writer says, I want you to consider Abraham. Abram, who became Abraham, was far from a perfect man. He lied many times. He did some really goofy things. And yet God used him tremendously to be a father, a father of the Jewish people, the first recorded monotheist. You realize that, that really the biggest three world faiths of, Christian, of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all branch from Abraham. But what we find is that when we look at Abraham's life, God came to him and made him some promises. God said to him, look at what he said in Genesis 12. Abram, which means exalted father, became Abraham, father from all But God said, Abram, I want you to get out of your country from your family and your father's house to a land I'll show you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a great nation, meaning you're going to have offspring that are as, as numerous as the stars or the sands of the shore. And he said, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make your name great. In fact, Abram, you're gonna be a blessing. Look at this. With people that will bless you, I'll bless them. If they curse you, I'll curse them. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Now, how many children did Abraham, Abram have at that time? How many kids? 0, 0.0, none. God would later tell him, I'm going to give you a child of promise. But he got impatient. He didn't wait on the Lord. He slept with his wife's maidservant. He slept with Hagar and he, she gave birth to Ishmael. And friends, I'm here to tell you to this day, thousands and thousands of years later, there is tension in the world because Abraham did not wait. Abraham would not wait on the promise of God. Now, he did some things wrong, he did some things right. God gave him the son of promise named Isaac. And even though God would test him up to the point of even slaying his son of promise, Abram now, Abraham would now follow God. And Abraham would walk in the promises of God and Isaac would have Jacob and Jacob would wrestle with God and have 12 sons and be named Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel through whom then the Judah, the tribe of Judah and the line of David, we would get Jesus, the Christ. So God would bless all the earth from the very loins of Abraham. But he had to trust God and take God at his word. And I've kind of written it like this, guys. Looking back, like to Abraham, encourages us to look up and empowers us to look ahead. God would declare, he would make a promise, chapter 10, that's chapter 12. He would continue to make promises. He would make a covenant in 15. He would go on in 17 to make an oath. And by that oath, he would say, I'm gonna swear by myself, declares the Lord. See, here's the deal. He made an initial promise then he formalized that with an oath. And the Bible says in this section that God gave two immutable things, things that cannot be changed. His promise, his initial promise, and then his oath. And by those two immutable things, he could not be changed. Because people, according to this text, they always promise or make a vow, swear, if you will, not in the negative sense of swear, but they swear by the greater thing. What does that mean? What, is, what does that verse mean there when it says, verse 16, men indeed swear by the greater and oath or confirmation ends all dispute. Well, you know what we do. You get somebody on the witness stand and what do you do? You swear them in. You say, do you solemnly swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So are we having lighting things or is it just my eyes? 
Okay, are these two, you're not playing, right? It's a real issue, right? Because we would have a real issue. Okay, good, thanks. I'm thinking, why is it getting brighter and darker? Okay, so it's not just me. I thought, man, my coffee was bad this morning. So what we do this when we say, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. But how could God make such a declaration? If God were on the witness stand and you said, okay, God, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, you? How does that work? See, God can swear by no one greater than himself, for there is no one greater than God, because God always was and always is and always will be. It's one of those immutable characteristics that make him God. And you say, well, who was before God? Well, nothing, no one, that's what makes him God. And see, even those who would decry and say, no, there is no God, well, then where did things come from? Where did they start? You're going to have to use some other weird explanation because of the problem of infinite regress. So where did that come from? And where did that come from? As we as theists say, well, because God was there and he can swear by no one greater. It's why you take wedding vows. You make vows before God and before witnesses. Even those who are secular make vows. You must have witnesses. You must make declaration because you're saying this is important. I'm going to make a promise beyond myself. And God promised that Abraham would be blessed and that the, the, the descendants, the followers would be blessed by him. In fact, all the world would be blessed. But everything seemed bleak. Abram was an old man. Sarah was an old woman far past the normal age of childbearing. But God took the bleakness, the blankness, the darkness, and God created something miraculous. I will bless you, and I will multiply you. He even talks about verse 18. He says, we have a strong consolation, and we fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that's set before us. There is an Old Testament concept that even those who messed up, could flee for refuge. These were called cities of refuge. God appointed six cities, three on either side of the Jordan, where if you had accidentally taken a life, you could flee. Because even when you messed up, God said, I still love you and I'm not giving up on you. And you can flee for hope. And I would say, if we will flee to Christ today, then the accuser of our soul, Satan, can never lay hold of us. But we've got to stay faithful and fruitful as imitators of Jesus, not just imitations. We've got to look back also to our faithful forefathers, and we've got to trust God's promises. And then finally, we've got to keep our hope firmly joined to Jesus, who is himself the anchor of our soul. He says, look, there's this hope and we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, sure, steadfast, which enters the presence. So hope personified. Hope is now moving. Hope enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. Now we're going to talk about his high priestly role and the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot of that in chapter 7 when we come back to Hebrews. But I want you to see a picture, guys. There's this concept when you look at this of moving to a place of refuge. If you've ever been out on the water here, and some of the wider bodies of water, Cherokee, Douglas, even um, over toward Concord on Lake Loudon, on Fort Loudon, there are places where when it's a windy day, you can really rock and roll. You can see white caps. But when we're out there fishing or playing, a lot of times we'll find a cove, a harbor, a bay, a place where you can get around out of that wind. I want you to see the imagery that the writer's using here. 
He's saying that Jesus was willing to move and become an anchor. In fact, it says he went out and away to the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, behind the veil, and he was a prodromos, pro to be first, prodromos, forerunner, a first runner. He went back in like he's going into this harbor. Now, let me tell you the imagery. Back in the day of antiquity, ships were built, big sailing vessels with large kills underneath. Even sailboats today, most will have a kill. And so it goes way down. So you can't get that boat in super shallow water. But if you're going into that bay for safety, into that harbor, you would often take a smaller vessel. Uh, you, you could call it like a dinghy, a little boat that the sailors would get in and they would literally take the anchor because you only had so much rope and they would take it in to a more shallow place where they could maybe find some rock or something else and they could even go as far as the shore, but they would anchor into a certain point. They would drop anchor there and then they would come back to the mother ship. And so there was a security in that. You were protected there. You were anchored away. And the interesting thing is when we think about what Jesus has done, he's anchored us. I want you to think about this picture. Our anchor as Christians is not down in the sand. Our anchor is up in the heavens. Think about this picture. He went behind the veil where the very presence of God is to that Jewish mind, to that Old Testament mind. God is there on the mercy seat, his very presence. And so as high priest, not just once a year, but in his death, burial, resurrection, Jesus took the anchor and he goes into the very presence of God for us. And he puts it there and it's solid there. Remember fishing with a buddy of mine in North Carolina named Daryl. He had a big military grade raft and we'd fish the Yadkin and smallmouth fish a lot. And he had this old like, um, I think it was like an antifreeze bottle. He put concrete in, rocks and concrete. And that was his anchor. And I never really understood till I, I got to know Daryl and know how we like to fish. He'd throw that thing, but when we were in a swifter current, we would keep moving. And I said, Daryl, the anchor's not holding. And he said, no, it's not meant to. It's just meant to slow us down here. And so that thing would kind of bounce on the bottom, but when he wanted to stop, when he found a great jetty in a place where on the backside you knew there were probably going to be small, he would actually stop and lean over, and because it was often so shallow, he would make a place and put some rock, and that same anchor now was, was put down. And so we would come to the end of our rope, and then we would hold there. Even when the current was swifter, and we would fish for a while until we had done that spot, and then he'd pull anchor and we would move on. And there are going to be times in your life where it feels like the current is so strong and the wind and waves are so abusive that you cannot possibly hold. But if you walk with Jesus by faith and remember the great patriarchs of old, those men and those women who proved faithful, then there is nothing and there is no one that can pull your anchor because it's not in the sand, it's up in the very presence of God in heaven you see, by the end of the second century, the anchor had become a very meaningful Christian symbol. Clement of Alexandria, an outstanding teacher of the early church, mentioned the anchor as a symbol of our strong and steady faith. He said this, let our seals be either a dove, obviously, Holy Spirit, a fish, obviously, fishers of men, or a ship's anchor. And you can actually find on many Christian epitaphs pictures of the anchor as a sure and steady, secure hope. This is what Christ has done.
In his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he has gone into the very presence of God for us, and we are anchored in glory. We're not anchored here in a tabernacle. We're not anchored here in a temple. We are now the temple of God. We are anchored in glory with Christ. When we fled to him, he is our refuge, our eternal high priest who will never die. But where is the anchor of your soul today? Where is the anchor of your soul today? 2009, we went back to North Carolina. After the horrible financial troubles of 08 and early 09, a friend of mine lost his father. He drove to his mother and father's home one night and his father was there in the backyard hanging from a tree. He had co-coached with my father for many years when me and this kid played baseball together. And he, he was a good friend of our family and it was very disturbing. We went in and we said, hey bud, what happened? And he said, dad just thought they had lost everything. He said it was just such a hard time for them. He just lost hope. And it broke my heart. To this day, it breaks my heart because his father was such a good man, a kind man. Where is your hope anchored today? I'm just gonna tell you, man, I don't care how much you think you have in a worldly sense. If your hope is anchored in finances, it can change. If your hope is anchored purely in your health or your looks, it can change. In fact, in time, it will change. If your hope is anchored in another person, now listen, I love my sweetheart. I think you know I love my sweetheart. But, but Cindy Lewis doesn't complete me. Jesus Christ alone completes me. If I'm anchored only to her, then what happens if something happens? I love my family. It's a joy to see our family here, to see our family grow and to see little Sophia over there with her Gma. It is such a precious gift. But if all of my hope is anchored in other people, things can change. And so we have to be anchored in the immutable one, the unchanging creator God. We have to be anchored in the right place. Is your anchor in Christ and Christ alone today? Is he the anchor of your soul? Because there is something I can tell you with absolute assurance. If you live long enough, the wind will come. The waves will come. The current will get strong. There will be times when you will feel as though you will surely be blown away. But in Jesus, there is security. There is stability. You do not have to give up. You can move on. Stay faithful and fruitful as imitators, not imitations. Be the real thing the world is watching. Look to our faithful forefathers and trust God's promises. He said it then and he was true to his word. He says it today and he's true to his word. Keep your hope firmly joined to Jesus, the anchor of our soul. Let me ask you a question. I don't think I saw a single hand in the first service, so it's perfectly okay if you do not know this person. He is not an actor. Sounds kind of like an actor's name, but it's not. Do any of you know, not if you were in the first service, that would be cheating. Do any of you know a man named Lawrence Tuning? Lawrence Tuning, you've heard him? Okay, very, very few people know who this is, but most of you have been touched by his work. Lawrence Tuning, in his own words, it was 1992 when my wife and I experienced what we now call our year of sorrows. Have you ever had a year of sorrows? 
We, we did, in losing both of our fathers in Bobby's type one diabetes diagnosis and losing my grandmother in a lot of life change over a short period of time. A lot of things came our way. Tuning said, my father died that year and we were facing health problems. I came to the point of burnout from being in pastoral ministry for 19 years and the church I'd helped plant was entering the first phases of what became a devastating split. I was also reevaluating the focus of my calling. I was weary and discouraged. Then in the summer of 92, my wife experienced her third miscarriage. We wept as we held the tiny 14 week old son in our hands. It truly felt as if our visions and dreams had slipped right through like they were only grains of sand. It seemed as if our best years were over. I was given a sabbatical from pastoring for six months. And during that time, my wife and I grieved and prayed. And I began to play the piano again for hours at a time alone with God. And during the time of sadness and uncertainty, the Holy Spirit gave me a song. And as I would sing it, I began to experience God's comfort and encouragement and hope. And much like great is thy faithfulness, was born out of lamentations. A lot of those greatest pieces that have spoken to us come out of seasons like this. In the spring of 93, my old friend heard about the song during a time of sharing together after one of his concerts in Maine. And a few months later, he called me and expressed interest in recording it. I sent the song to him, told him he was free to adapt it for his purpose, and it was released for national airplay November of 94. Now imagine, if most of you don't know tuning, that's fine. But most of you have heard these lyrics. I have journeyed through the long dark night out on the open sea by faith alone, sight unknown, and yet his eyes were watching me. I've had visions, I've had dreams, I've even held them in my hand, but I never knew that they would slip right through like they were only grains of sand. Stand with me this morning. And if you know this, I want you to sing it. And if you know Jesus, you can always sing it. The anchor holds, though the ship is battered. The anchor holds, though the sails are torn. As I face the raging seas, for the anchor holds in spite of the storm. Have you heard that song before? You know, friends, people have asked me before, well, what do you think about it when an artist like Ray Bolts, who popularized that, what do you think when somebody sings that? And you know what I say? Because somebody comes out and their lifestyle changes or they no longer affirm the God they once did doesn't change the truth of a particular song or a piece. And the reality is the lyric of that song still holds true as Lawrence Tuning wrote it. And so I would say to you that if you are feeling as though that everything is slipping right through your hands, go back 
Go back to the word of God. Go back to the characters of God. Go back to the great songs of old that have poured into you and that you can now pour into others and say, you know what? When I fall on my knees and I cling to Jesus, even though the sea is raging, in spite of the storm, the anchor holds. When you know Christ and when you walk with him by faith and not just by sight, you can have endurance and you can share that with others in the form of encouragement. I want you to bow your heads and pray with me and I want to ask you a question. Is you or someone you know, are you or someone you know facing a strong wind, a high wave, a moving current? Is there something in your life or something in the life of someone you care deeply about that's really pushing against them? Is there something that would cause them to possibly abandon this faith? Love on them, pray for them, encourage them. I had you flood this altar a few weeks ago praying for folks, praying for those that could be maybe a professor but not a possessor. Is there something in your own life that's trying to push you from the Lord and push you from the faith? Like David, could you say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Could you say like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Where is your anchor today? Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.